You know, you may not, and probably don't know this about me, but I don't actually know who my father is. I mean, and by that I mean my biological father. Uh, I mean, my, I have a dad. My mom got remarried when I was little. I was about three, and uh, he really is my dad. He loved me. He raised me. He supported me. He cared for me. I truly count him as a father. But the guy I'm genetically related to, I don't have a clue who he is. I mean, I know what he looks like, but I don't know him. So there's this whole side of my family history that I don't know a thing about. And if I get the story right, since my biological father was himself adopted, and he, that means he doesn't know who his father was, and so there's all this mystery about this entire side of my genetic history. And to be totally honest, I never thought much about that. I didn't really think about it much until, that, that is, I had Middle Eastern friends tell me that I looked like I was from the Middle East. Which, which sounds crazy. That, that doesn't seem like that's, that's possible, but, but Sarah can attest to this, that almost every single, in fact, every single Mid Middle Eastern friend that I had would ask me if I was of Lebanese or Syrian descent. Apparently, I've got the features that match people from Lebanon or Syria. And my response to that, that question was always, no, of course not. I'm not Lebanese. I'm not Syrian. It doesn't make any sense. But after a while, I began to think, well, actually, I don't know. I might be. I, I, I don't know anything about my biological dad, and for all I know, he may well have been of Lebanese or Syrian descent. Maybe this mysterious family history of mine did have origins in the Middle East. And so, needless to say, I'm pretty intrigued. So I did what everyone does nowadays. I took a DNA test. So I got the test in the mail, and I did my little spit-in-the-tube thing and sent it away, and a couple weeks later, I get the test back, very eager to find out, and, you know, uh, pretty anticlimactic. Sure enough, no Lebanese, no Syrian, no ancestry from the Middle East, just mostly English and Irish and a bunch of other things combined together. It makes me look like a character from a Star Trek film. That's <laughs> what I've got. Here's my point. Here's why I'm, I'm telling you this. Um, who my biological father is doesn't actually matter. It doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. It doesn't change any of my responsibilities of the present and what I'm called to do with my life now. Whether I'm British or I'm, I'm Lebanese, it changes absolutely nothing about the mission and purpose that drives the centrality of my life. But you see, what profoundly does matter, what changes absolutely everything about me and my life and my, pur my purpose that, and mission that unfolds in my life is who my spiritual father is is. That means everything. It means absolutely everything. And you see, helping us understand who our Father really is, is exactly John's agenda in 1 John chapter 3. See, he wants us to know that there are two and only two possible spiritual fathers that someone could have in the world. And everyone belongs to one of those two fathers. Either your Father is God, to whom you belong by faith in Christ, or, wait for it, your father is the evil one, by whom you are enslaved, by whom you are blinded. 
There's no middle ground. Everyone has a spiritual lineage. Everyone has a spiritual heredity, a spiritual family tree. Everyone is a child of someone, and John makes it really clear that either you are a child of God born again, or you are a child of the devil dead in sin. That's it. Those are the only two possibilities. And the reason why John's going to be so blunt about this is because you know, you know, the situation at these churches is just so urgent, clever, snake oil theologians, i.e. false teachers, crept into the church and caused real confusion about the doctrine of salvation. One of the things they claimed, you know this now, is that holiness and obedience were essentially optional. See, this Gnostic heresy that these people were pushing had this really sneaky way of justifying sin and disobedience. You could have total assurance that your salvation was real, even if your life was lived in total rebellion problem is that's just not what the Bible teaches. It's just not what the Bible teaches. Because you understand, when God saves a soul, he makes them a son. A son or daughter of the living God. Born again children of God. And the thing about born again children of God is that they actually pursue righteousness. They actually are righteous people. Now, they've got their flaws, and they've got their struggles, to be sure, but nevertheless, they prove who their father is through a transformed life that puts Christ on display. So what John's going to do this morning is going to give us a lesson, a lesson in salvation genetics, just like people use DNA and trait inheritance and, and uh, dominant and recessive genes to help people know who they are. That's exactly what John's going to do. He's going to help us understand our spiritual heredity. And you realize how badly we need this, right? How badly we need this chapter? Because we need this. You see, the health and the power and the strength of a church to perpetuate and expand is profoundly dependent upon our teaching, the clear, robust teaching of the doctrine of salvation. With very few exceptions that are beyond our control, your kids and your grandkids and their future kids and their future grandkids will be saved and live for the glory of Christ if and only if we are committed to teaching the kinds of things found in this letter. So let's go to the text. This morning, no notes for you this morning. Apologies. This morning, I want you to see from our text three lessons. Three lessons. And these lessons are in salvation genetics. Three lessons in salvation genetics required to know if you are a child of God born again or a child of the devil dead in sin. John's words, not mine. Three lessons in salvation genetics required to know if you are a child of God born again or a child of the devil dead in sin. And so the first lesson is this, number one. The lesson of trait inheritance. The lesson of trait inheritance, which is how you live reflects your father. How you live reflects your father. In other words, in the world of, of genetics, trait inheritance is, is basically the study of how traits are handed down from parents to the offspring. In other words, you look the way you do because of your parents who gave life to you. 
And in a spiritual sense, you are who you are and you live how you live precisely because of your spiritual father, whoever that is. And John, and really the whole Bible is, is really clear about this. There are children of God and there are children of the evil one. And if you're a child of God, you reflect and resemble who your father is. You look like your father. You love what he loves. You hate what he hates. That's what it means to be godly. And yet the, sport, the sword of heredity cuts both ways because to be a child of the devil means you also look like your father. You resemble your father. You love what he loves. You hate what he hates. You reflect and resemble who he is. That's what it means to be ungodly. And the problem is not everyone believes this. In fact, some people teach different than this. Some, some people insist that how you actually live in real time doesn't necessarily reveal if you're a Christian or not. That you can have full assurance that your salvation is real and yet live your life in casual disregard of the word of Christ, in opposition to the word of Christ, which just isn't true, which is why John says what he says in verses 7 and 8. Look at the text. He says, little children, notice, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is from the devil because the devil has sinned from the beginning. So you see it, don't you? John does here in verse 7 what he loves to do which is to take the entirety of the human race, split it down the middle, and tell us that there are two and only two kinds of people living in the world. And who are they? What does he say? He said there are those, there are those who practice righteousness and there are those who practice sin. The first group is righteous. The second group is of the devil, which means, which means John, what John is doing here is in the most shocking terms showing us the difference between believers and unbelievers. And there is a difference a spiritually genetic difference at the DNA level of the soul. And yet you notice in verse 7 that John begins with a warning, something that you are to be aware of, a danger of which to be cautious of, something to not be deceived by. Look what he says. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Let no one lead you astray. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Do you hear the danger? The danger is there are people out there who want to deceive you. And they want to deceive you about this in particular. And they most certainly will deceive you if you are not vigilant and careful and if you don't know exactly what the Bible says about salvation. They're going to get you. They're going to get you. Because that's exactly what these clever con men tried to do in this church. And yet, what in, what in particular does John not want them to be deceived about? Notice, there's one coin, two sides. Look at side one in verse seven. He says, the one who practices righteousness is righteous. I mean, it's subtle here, but can you hear the theological deformity that John wants to cure? The deformity is, look, you can be a righteous person and not live a righteous life. That how you live your life doesn't 
actually reveal if your salvation is authentic. Put it this way, you can identify as one thing on the inside, but be something completely different on the outside, which is precisely the, de the delusion that just fills our culture. And in particular, I'm thinking about the transgender movement. But you see, these clever con men, they made this separation between who they were and how they lived. You see, they claimed fellowship with God. They claimed to be in the light. They claimed to know Christ and to abide in Christ. Put in modern day terms, they claimed to be children of God, but they lived their lives like children of the devil. That's a real problem because what that is is deception. And what John says here in verse 7, he says, that's not true. He pulls the rug on that kind of thinking. He says, that's not true. Because the truth is, the one who practices righteousness is righteous. In other words, born-again children of God, flawed and sinful though they be, they live lives that put Jesus Christ on display. What that does is raise the question, I mean, what, does it, what does it mean to be a righteous person who lives a righteous life? I mean, I mean, if this is John's definition of a Christian, and it most certainly is, then what on earth is he talking about? What does it mean to practice righteousness? Well, just even saying the word practice, it points to one's habits and patterns, doesn't it? Habits, patterns, customs, routines about someone's life that, that reveals and demonstrates who they really are. I mean, if someone wears a flannel and has a beard and chops down trees for a living, you're talking about a lumberjack. And if you're talking about someone who actually pursues, lit, tries to pursue a righteous life, you're talking about a righteous person. Their practice proves who they are. In other words, when it comes to the Christian life, you are what you do, not who you say you are. And see, the issue here that, that really John, gives John's argument weight and gravity is what he means by righteousness that this is massive because we don't give that a lot of thought what righteousness means right we just assume that it that it uh that it means morality obedience it's a synonym for holiness it's doing the right thing being a good person that's what it means to be righteous and yet, trust me when I say that that word is loaded with more theological significance than you would, would ever believe was possible. You see, when John uses that word righteousness, get this now, he is building upon centuries and centuries of Old Testament theology that uses the word righteousness to describe who God is and how he acts in human history. And had we the two extra hours to look at every single time this word occurs, we would see that for God to be righteous, get this now, means that his acts and deeds he does in history must correspond to his infinite worth and value. In other words, the essence of being righteous, get this, is that God must supremely value what is supremely valuable. And he alone is supremely valuable. That means for God to be righteous means that everything he does in history is designed to uphold, preserve, and display his infinite worth and beauty as supremely valuable. That's what righteousness is. Which means that for us to be righteous means that we must value supremely what is supremely valuable. 
To be righteous means that the deeds and acts we do are designed, they have as their intention to display the matchless worth and beauty of God. That our greatest allegiance, our greatest passion in the universe is to uphold and preserve and display the infinite worth and beauty of God as supremely valuable. You see, we fight lust, and we avoid anger, and we kill greed, and we flee from gossip, not merely because those things are naughty things to do, but because they don't uphold and preserve and display the infinite worth and beauty of God. That's why. Don't you see, what drives our obedience in the secret moments that nobody sees is a passion to display the worth of God's beauty over and above the passing pleasures of sin, even if no one sees that obedience except God. That's what it means to be righteous. Those are the character traits, the genetic trait, the trait inheritance of one who has been born again by the Father. And so the loaded question of the morning is, are you righteous? Are you a righteous person? Which means I'm asking, I don't mean sinless, I mean do you value supremely what is supremely valuable? Can you see in your life the highly imperfect but ever increasing passion to uphold and preserve and display the infinite worth of God as supremely valuable to the habits and patterns and customs of your life reveal the highly imperfect but ever-increasing delight in God as the highest treasure of your soul? That's what it means to be righteous. Because you realize to, to get to this place, to get to the place where we are righteous, and all that that includes has to mean that something supernatural has happened in our soul, right? You see, we do what we do because we love what we love. And you see, the only way to love God more is through prolonged exposure to his word with all of its supernatural power to transform the human soul. That's it. That, that's the only way to become a righteous people. To become a righteous man who leads his family in righteousness. To be a righteous woman Senior saint, young adult, it doesn't matter who or what you are. The fires of a righteous life are produced in the furnace of the soul by the fuel of truth. That's it. There's not another way. And, and I know I ask you a lot about this, but it's not because I can't think of another application. It's because the scriptures are just so central to the entire operation. But the question is, is this book a priority for you? Do you see this as fuel for the furnace of the soul, the absence of which will leave you cold and vulnerable to sin and deception? Do you see that the slow and careful reading of the word is the supreme catalyst for spiritual growth in your life? And I know, I know it's a big book with a lot of complexities. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things going on. But if you want help enjoying the glory of God through his word, encountering God through his word, 
I will literally be right up here after the service, ready to meet with you, talk with you, and, and help you learn how to encounter the living God through the sacred text. I want to help you be a righteous people. But as I said earlier, the, the coin of John's warning here has two sides. Side one is that if you are truly righteous, you will live a righteous life. You are what you do. But the second side of John's warning is, is exactly the same, but from the opposite angle. Look at verse 8. He says, the one who practices righteousness is righteous. Okay, we got that. But, verse 8, the one who practices sin is from the devil. <laughs> because the devil has sinned from the beginning. Now, do you see what it is that John does not want you to be deceived about? Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray, he says. Those who practice sin... Those whose lives are filled with ongoing patterns of sin that they knowingly tolerate and secretly justify. What does he say? Like a ton of bricks, he says, they are from the devil. Wait, from the devil? Seriously, John? What does that even mean? It means that the predominant power at work in their lives is the enslaving power of the evil one. It means they prove by the habits and patterns and customs and priorities and routines of their life that they are still under the blinding spell of the dragon. That they are his agents. They are his puppets. They are his slaves. He is their father. They are his offspring. Which just sounds way over the top, does it, John? You superstitious old coot. Get out of the dark ages. That's not what he is. He's a pastor and a shepherd and an apostle and a theologian, and he has a perfectly sound theological reason for why he says what he does. Look again at verse 8. He says, the one who practices sin is from the devil. How do you know? How can you say that? Because the devil has sinned from the beginning. In other words... Like father, like son, is his point. Sin is what the devil has always done. John is saying that the resemblance between this person and the devil is just too uncanny not to make a family connection. I mean, the ability, the ability to live in guilt-free indifference to the word of Christ, no matter what it is they claim, displays the very DNA of the devil. They're in the gene pool of the prince of darkness himself. Which just puts in shocking perspective, doesn't it, what it actually means to be a non-Christian? A slave of the evil one. And what that also does is heighten the intensity and urgency to proclaim the gospel. And yet, what's interesting is John is not about to let Satan have the final word here. The main headline, you see, we should never talk about the evil one unless we are always willing to talk about in the same breath how Christ has already achieved victory over the evil one, which is exactly what John does. Look at the end of verse 8. The one who practices sin is from the devil. Because the devil has sinned from the beginning. Here it is. For this reason the Son of God appeared. What was the reason? That he should destroy the works of the devil. It's incredible, isn't it? The devil destroying mission of the Messiah. 
See, the Son of Man, the Son of God showed up to the planet not just to redeem and deliver, but to ruin and destroy. To bring ruin and destruction. Ruin for Him. Redemption for us. Destruction for Him. Deliverance for us. What's John's point? The point is, those who are born-again children of God who belong to Christ, who formerly were offspring of the evil one, when they belong to Christ, the point is they share in his victory over the evil one. He doesn't rule us. He doesn't own us. He doesn't pull the strings. He doesn't call the shots of our lives. In Christ, the power of Satan has been neutered and defanged. And you say, yeah, yeah, but he is a roaring lion. That's true. But he is a lion with a fatal wound caused by the lion of Judah. He is a serpent, that's true, but the Son of Man has already crushed his head. He is a dragon and a prince and the God of this world, but if you belong to Christ, you literally have nothing to fear because at the cross, Christ shattered the teeth of the evil one, and when he comes at the second coming to build his kingdom, it is there he will land the final punch. We have victory in Christ. And that's lesson one. Lesson one of salvation genetics. How you live reflects who your father really is. No question about it. Which brings us to the second lesson. The second lesson of salvation genetics, which is this. Number two, the lesson of conception. We have the lesson of trait inheritance first, but the lesson of conception, number two, which is this. Being born again results in holiness. Being born again results in holiness. Because that is interesting, isn't it? That that the Bible uses birth, being born, as a metaphor to describe what God had to do to save us. That's really interesting, because what that implies is that we had about as much to do with our spiritual birth as we did with our physical birth, which was nothing, which was nothing. You didn't cause that. You didn't bring that about. You didn't want that because we were not conscious beings who could will or want anything. Non-existence cannot will itself to become a fertilized egg in the womb. And so if the new birth is anything at all, what it is is a sovereign work of power that only God can accomplish, which is exactly what it is. But you see, the thing about the new birth and why John brings it up here, listen carefully, is because the deepest explanation for why sons and daughters of God actually pursue holiness is that they have been born again. That they can't live like they did when they were children of the devil. Look look at verse 9. He says, Everyone who has been born from God does not practice sin because his seed abides in him and he is not able to sin because he has been born from God. Now, do you see it, how, how verse 9 fits into his argument? You see, in this verse, John opens the hood. He pulls back the curtain. He takes us down into the very boiler room of the soul, as it were, to show and explain the ultimate, the ultimate factor that determines why one person is righteous and why another person is of the devil. 
And the answer is not because the person who is righteous is better than the other person, but because they have been supernaturally born again by the living God. That's the difference. So look what John says. Look at John's language here. This is so provocative, but it is so hope-giving. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, everyone who has been born of God does not practice sin. Now, did you hear that there? Listen very carefully. Did you hear the passive nature of the verb? Has been born. Been born. Been awakened. Been made alive. Been awakened by the sovereign power of God. Because you remember, you remember that being born from God describes the miracle that God had to perform for you to believe and be saved. Do you remember that? You remember that the Bible is clear that the nature of sin and the nature of spiritual death requires a soul awakening, life-giving intervention by God that opens the eyes of the blind to see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. We were never going to do that on our own. We were never going to repent and believe on our own. You realize that, right? We were never going to come to our senses and just sort of figure it out on our own. It was never going to happen. Because that is the nature of what spiritual death is. Because you see, to believe and get saved, God had to infringe on our self-destruction. He had to intervene and break us and set us free from our idols by an unmatched beauty. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 2.5, God had to make us alive and resurrect our very souls. Little church, let me just ask you this morning. Do, do, you, do you marvel at your salvation this morning? Is it astounding to you how supernatural, profoundly supernatural, your faith in Christ really is? Does it stagger you every single day that had God not intervened, you would have never believed and been saved? Put it this way, do you want the secret to being a joyful, patient, forgiving person who responds with compassion and love and grace to the people in your lives? Do, do you want to be that kind of person? It's what we all want. But the answer, the answer to becoming that person lies in the fact of having your soul rocked by what God had to do to save us from eternal woe and despair. And yet, what is John's point here? What is, what is exactly his point in bringing up being born again? He talks a lot about this. Why does he bring it up here again? Well, what does the new birth actually produce in the lives of those who receive it? Brace yourselves. John says exactly what it produces. Look very carefully, verse 9. He says, everyone who has been born from God, here it is, does not practice sin. You know, the word practice is not actually in the Greek text. The word practice isn't there. Our English, ver our English versions just put practice so that you don't freak out and miss John's point. <laughs> but literally, the Greek text just says this. The one who has been born from God does not sin. That's what it says. 
In fact, John goes on to say that the person born again is not even able to sin because he's born again. You don't sin. You can't sin if you have been born again by the living God. I know what you're thinking. Jared has dug himself here. But don't forget John's theology. Don't, don't panic and misunderstand. You remember John's theology. You remember back in chapter 1, verse 8, that he says that those who claim they have no sin, they are deceiving themselves, right? And in the very next verse, he goes on to say that if we confess our sins, he is faithful, God is faithful to forgive us. So clearly, John doesn't mean that born-again people don't sin. They do. We do sin, unfortunately. But you see, the issue here, the issue here, when John says that born-again people don't sin, get this now, the tense of the verb indicates ongoing habits and patterns and customs and routines and priorities that shape and define who someone really is. What John's talking about, he means a life that is dominated by sin, that is ruled by sin, that is enslaved by sin, that is controlled by sin, which means, listen carefully, listen very carefully, when God awakens a soul from spiritual death, he sets them free from the power of sin's control. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Don't you see the new birth? The new birth is the deepest guarantee of a holy life because it is the miracle that freed us from the slavery to the suicidal pleasures of sin. The new birth is the miracle that made living a righteous life even possible for us. And it is possible. It is possible. See, you can be holy, you can be righteous. All of the gnarly, stubborn sins with which you struggle that just never, ever seem to go away can be overcome and mastered precisely because we have been born again by God. Which sounds crazy, doesn't it? Delusional, unrealistic, fictional, fairy taleish that we can actually overcome the sins and struggles that have plagued us the entirety of our lives? It's crazy. No, it's not. It's not crazy. It's not delusional. Because you see, unlike our physical birth, when it comes to our spiritual birth, we don't cut the cord and live our lives as independent children. Rather, when God performs the miracle of the new birth, we stay attached and connected to the sovereign power of God. Like what John says in verse 9. Notice the logic of his argument. He says, everyone who has been born from God does not sin. Why? Why, John? Because, notice what he says, because his seed abides in him. And he is not able to sin because he has been born from God. Do you hear the logic? Pure-bred, born-again children don't live and loiter in sin precisely because, here's what the Greek says, his seed abides in him. That's John's argument. That, that's, that's John's explanation for why we are free from the power of sin's control, which sounds incredible. It sounds amazing. Or at least I think it does. Because what does that even mean? Well, what, is it, what, what does it mean, that phrase, his seed abides in him, 
What is he even talking about? Well, you need to know that there is debate here. There's debate here about two issues. Two issues. One, who or what is the seed? Two, who or what does the seed abide in? Does that make sense? That's, that's the debate. In other words, either the seed, listen carefully, either the seed is something that God implants within the believer, like his word or his spirit, and that abides in the human soul, or, or the seed is a way to describe believers themselves, and they abide in God. And I believe the option is option B. You see, we are the seed, and we abide in God, and that is the reason why we have victory over the seductive allurements and power of sin. You see, that word seed, it doesn't only mean seed, it also means offspring. It's a synonym for children. You see, we are, when God made us born again, we became his seed, we became his children, we became his offspring. And as his children, we abide in him. And that word abide is John's favorite word to describe the Christian life. Six times in this letter, he says that authentic children of God abide in God. And as I said last week, that word abide is the perfect word to describe the Christian life because what it is is a botanical word an agricultural word that describes the inseparable organic relationship between trees and branches. Trees bear, branches bear leaves and fruit precisely because they are connected to the life of the tree, and that is exactly, exactly what John is saying about children of God. Do you see, when we become born-again children of God, it's not merely a change in our status, or to change in our title, to be born again results in a spiritual union with God, whereby our lives are so inseparably intertwined with His that He lives His own life in and through us. That's what that means. And that's why children of God don't live and loiter in sin. Isn't that what John says? It's exactly what he says. Everyone who has been born from God does not sin. Why? Because he, God's seed, God's offspring abides in God. And he is not able to sin, patterns, routines, habits, because he has been born from God. That's exactly what he said. So the salvation lesson of conception is clear, isn't it? Being born again results in holiness. It results in righteousness. You see, the, being the new birth was what freed us from the chains of iniquity. The new birth, you understand, was the meal ticket that released us from the slavery and prison of sin. You see, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. In Christ, you're no longer dead. You are alive, no longer a slave. You have victory over the sins that you've never, ever been able to shake precisely because you have been born again by the living God. Don't you, don't you see, when you were born, the umbilical cord was cut. But when you were born again, you stay attached, moment by moment, to the life of the Trinity 
who supplies the power you need to do what he commands. Which again is why the word of God is just so central to the entire operation, isn't it? It's so central to this. Because you understand the, the umbilical cord through which we get access to the power, of, to the life of God in real time is the very book that you're holding in your hands. There's not another way. The means through which, the means through which we experience the power that comes from our new birth and our regeneration is the sacred text of Holy Scripture, which isn't just a piece of literature. It is a portal to the power and presence of God himself. And so what you must do is read, which is obvious, but you must read it every day over and over again until you can almost see the words on the page when you close your eyes. And then as you go throughout your day, you just integrate what you read into everything else that you're doing, reflecting, reciting, uh, recalling the words, making them your prayer as you go throughout your day. Don't you see? This is the secret. The moment by moment clinging to God's word with desperation is the umbilical cord through which we get access to the power of our new birth. So the question is, what are the traits of the Father that you don't see in your life, but you would really love to see? In what ways would you love to resemble Jesus Christ, who is not only our God and King, but get this, according to Hebrews 2.11, he is also our brother? In what ways would you love to be like your brother, Jesus Christ? Because you understand, don't you, why obedience matters? It's not at all merely being good people who do the right thing. Cleaning up our act a little bit, that, that's not the end. It's not an end, being moral as an end in itself. You see, your obedience and your righteousness is not just personal. It is global. It's global. Your private sanctification is a matter of national security. This, this is a glory of God issue. Do you see, our purity and our proclamation of the gospel working together is how we save perishing people. Don't you see, when, when our lives are changed and transformed, we are giving the world a picture of what Christ will do to the entire planet when he comes. The renovation, however slow and painful it may be, and trust me when I say we all know that it is slow and painful. Nevertheless, the slow and painful renovation of our lives is a preview to, of the renovation that Christ will bring to the entire planet when he shows up. This is a Savior that changes people's lives. Which brings us to the final lesson. The final lesson in salvation genetics. And the clock isn't working, which means I have unlimited time. <laughs> Final lesson number three. To know if you are a child of God born again or a child of the devil dead in sin. Number three, the lesson of heredity. The lesson of heredity, which is righteousness and love reveals your identity. Righteousness and love reveals your identity. You know, one of the things that I just... I guess, tickled by about babies, or at least some babies are this way, is that depending on the angle from which you look at them, 
they can look like either mommy or daddy. Have you ever seen babies like that? From this angle, look exactly like dad. But if you come from the other side and look at them, they look exactly like their mom. So it's interesting to me. And sometimes it's really hard to tell who resembles, which one they resemble more. You can just tell that they belong to both. But you see, when it comes to salvation genetics, and, and the father to whom you belong, you can't look like both. You can't be like both. You can't resemble both. You see, you either belong to the father of lights, or you belong to the father of lies. And you can't belong to both. And John reveals, he, he reveals the, exactly the kinds of traits that help us determine exactly who our father is. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil, notice, are obvious, he says. Everyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And there it is. That this is the entire aim of this chapter, you remember, to help his people discern the difference between children of God and children of the evil one. And notice what he says. This is really interesting. This is obvious. This is clear. This is not hard to tell. This is evident, he says. It's easy to tell who is a child of God and who is a child of the devil. Now, maybe it's tough for us at first. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Christ made it clear that wheat and tares in the church look a lot alike. Sometimes it's not always easy to tell the difference between the two. And, and trust me when I say that John is not at all encouraging some sort of harsh witch hunt culture where we're always trying to sniff out the communists. Right? John is not at all encouraging us to rashly call people children of the devil for the slightest offense. That's not what he's doing. But we also can't pretend that this verse doesn't exist and that there isn't a criteria by which we tell the difference between someone who is a believer and someone who is a make-believer. Because we can't avoid that. We can't avoid the inevitable reality that we all have the dominant genes of our father and that apparently and over time it will become obvious who it is to whom we belong. But the question is though, how do we tell the difference? What are the obvious neon lights manifestations that help us determine the difference between children of God and children of the evil one? Look again at what John says. He says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Here it is. Here, here's the foolproof criteria that determines the father to whom you belong. Everyone who does not practice righteousness, or I know your versions say, no one who practices righteousness, nor is from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And that's the criteria, righteousness and love. Righteousness and love, that's the criteria. That's, those are the ways you tell the difference between children of God and children of the devil, which, which, which is interesting that John selected those two things, right? He could have chosen any number of things that would have rightly revealed exactly who our Father is. But you see, he chooses these two things in particular because at the deepest possible level, they reveal exactly what's going on in the human soul. And if you think about it, these two things together, they make total sense. Righteousness reveals our vertical connection with God. Love reveals our horizontal connection with man. And these things are inseparable. So John links them together. 
You can't and won't have one without the other. If you are truly righteous, you will love. And if you are truly loving, you will be righteous. The question is, though, what does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be loving? Or in this case, what does it mean to be unrighteous? And what does it mean to be unloving? And righteous, we already know about, don't we? To be righteous means that in the secret, private moments that nobody in the universe sees except God, God is there. In the fullness of His being, and He is such a surpassing treasure to us that we long to live in a way that puts His beauty on display. That is what it means to be righteous, which means to be unrighteous means that we go inside and we close the door and we draw the blinds and we go to our room and we shut the door we turn off the lights and we close our eyes and think that nobody can see us but lo there is one who sees and he is closer to you even than your own skin and I think if John were here, he would not hesitate at all to ask you, not even for a moment, which of these two things do you see in your life? What are the habits and patterns and customs and routines and priorities reveal about who or what it is you love the most? Because trust me when I say that what it is you love the most is what you think about most when you are in solitude. Speaking of love, John says that loving other believers, that loving other believers is how we tell who our spiritual father really is. It's, it's connected. And yet, yet, what does it mean to love? Well, what does it actually look like to love those in our lives? Those who are born again, what does it look like to, to love other people? And while this deserves its own sermon, and trust me, it will get its own sermon, to love others in the biblical sense of the term, get this now, is to own the spiritual growth of others as your top priority. In its most simplified, distilled version, that's what it means to love, to own the spiritual growth of others as your top, highest priority. You see, love is to mediate and display whatever it is about Christ that anyone needs at any particular moment. That is love. It is to make tangible the most beautiful and satisfying person in the universe. That is love. Which means the opposite of that. Unlove is idolatry. A self-idolatry that pursues our own private pleasures and lusts at the expense or exclusion of other people. That is unlove. The question is, do you see any of that in your life? The dominant genes of righteousness and love or the gross mutilations of wickedness and hate? And I realize that maybe this is not a question you can answer in the moment. I realize maybe a question of this magnitude requires some time for you to ponder and reflect upon the patterns and, and habits and customs and routines and priorities of your life that really define and shape who you truly actually are. But the question is, the question is, if the children of God and the children of the devil are really so obvious as John says they are, 
then the question becomes, what group of children do you belong to? Who is your spiritual father? Because you see, if God the Father is not your father, and I close with this, if God the Father is not your father, you need to know that that is precisely why he sent his son to earth. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus Christ tasted death for the human race that he might bring many sons to glory. Many sons to glory. Children, don't you see? God is a father. God is love. And before time began, he made a plan to make a family. A family of souls from every nation who for all eternity share in the joy of their father. And so if you have not done so this morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of the father today, today, right now, at this moment, is the day to yield, to bow to the king in thirsty submission who died in the place of sinners like us, not merely to make us better versions of ourselves, but to make us sons and daughters of the living God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for being honest with us. Lord, it's not always the immediate thing that we want. And yet, Lord, when it comes to matters of this magnitude and significance, O oh Lord, that we don't have time to play around, we don't have time to soften the blow. And yet, Lord, it's clear, Lord, you have times when you are firm, you have times when you are more comforting, and, and yet, Lord, we take both of those. Equally delicious, equally glorious, and I ask, Lord, that you would help us. I ask, Lord, not that we would despair and try to be overly introspective and, and try to read too deep into every single bad motive that we have, because all of our motives are bad motives, Father, but I, I ask you that this would drive us to pursue you, that this would drive us with greater passion to live righteous lives, that this would cause us to have eyes open to see that a righteous life is the most satisfying life in the universe, and that when we are connected to you by faith, that you supply all the power we need to do what you command. And I pray, I pray that your word would have a more central and riveting and center stage place in our lives. Help us to be a people of the book. Equip us, help us, O oh Lord, to be teachers and trainers and those who invest in the lives of other people. We long to live lives that put you on display. Thank you for this time together. In your son's mighty and matchless name.